This is on Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, as we continue our journey in the greatest chapter of faith in the Bible, Bible, Hebrews 11. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many of the stars as heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob would die and bless each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The word of the Lord. Well, it was one of the greatest adventures of all time in American history. What John Lovell of NASA called one of the most successful failures of NASA. It started on April 11, 1970, when Apollo 13 blasted off to head to the moon to explore some of the mountain ranges there. Now, some of you will recall this from the movie Apollo 13 that came out a little while ago with Tom Hanks. And you'll recall that on a routine maintenance operation, one of the oxygen tanks blew apart and the mission automatically to land on the moon was scrapped. It moved from being a lunar exploration to a rescue mission, and the lunar module became a lifeboat. The question was how to get our astronauts back. And half the PhDs on the planet started to figure out how can we get this capsule back. There were two schools of thought. One of the schools said, we've got to turn around this capsule right away. We've got to get them back to Earth as quick as we, we can before they run out of electricity and water and all of the, and particularly air. But they realized that that couldn't work. What they had to do was to continue on the journey as planned. They were have, going to have to keep going away from the place of safety, around the far side of the moon, using it as a slingshot to propel the space capsule back. And after several days, as all of America, indeed all the world, sat on the edge of its chair, there was that fateful four minutes when the space capsule entered into the ionosphere of Earth and radio contact was broken off for four minutes. Would the capsule be able to survive re-entry? And then there was the jubilation 
and cheers of relief as the voices of the astronauts were heard again as they landed into the water. What a journey. How could these astronauts have known when they started this journey? What was going to transpire and take place? I wonder if they would have gotten in that capsule if they had known. You know, life is kind of like that, isn't it? It's a journey. We're all on it, aren't we? How do I know that? Well, you're alive. Journey has a beginning and an end, and we're all on different places. Some of us who are much younger are right at the beginning of the journey. Some more in the twilight of it, at least on this earth. But as in all journeys, things can go awry, can't they? Remember when you started out this journey and you were a young person thinking of all of the things that you were going to do and be in life? And then the oxygen tank blew. And you started to experience things going awry in your life. That unexpected call into the office by the boss who had some bad news to tell you. That unexpected conversation with your wife who decided she didn't want to be married anymore. Oxygen tanks blowing away, things going awry. A journey, an exploration, sometimes turning into a rescue mission. Maybe you feel in the midst of that journey right now. And the question you're asking yourself is, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get through to the other side, to safety? And that's where we can draw upon the examples in this, this chapter. People like Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, and Joseph. Normal people like you and me, where the oxygen tank blew. And they had to ask the question, how am I going to successfully navigate in this journey of life? That's the question that we have to ask today. How are we going to get through? The way that they got through was faith. They made a decision to cling rather, to the things of, rather than to the things of this world, to God. See, I believe there are only two types of people at the end of the day in this world. Those who cling to the things of this world and those who cling to God. To the one who made them, to the one who can success, successfully get them to the end of the journey. And so the question that this chapter answers and the question that we're going to deal with today is how do we choose to live this life of faith? How do we choose to cling to God rather than to the things of this world? If you want to take the journey of faith, I believe there are three things that this chapter explains to us that we have to do. Number one, we have to cut ties with the old life. We have to move from old to new. We have to cut ties. Number two, we have to make peace with this present life. We not only have to cut ties with the old life, we have to make peace with this present life. But then finally, number three, we have to look expectantly to the future life. So let's break these things apart as we consider that there are only two types of people in this world. Those who cling to the things of this world and those who cling to God. Number one, you have to cut ties with the old life. The story opens by talking about this person, Abraham, who we now know as the father of faith. Back then, he was just an ordinary guy. He was about 75 years old. They lived a little bit longer back then, living in the town of Haran, which is in modern-day Turkey, about 700 miles from Jerusalem. And Abraham was a shepherd going about his ordinary day when God spoke to him. In Genesis 21.1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you imagine Abraham's thoughts as he heard these words from God? He heard the first word that I will bless you. I will make your name great. From you who have no children will become a great nation. And through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. You will be great. But then he heard this other word. You must go. Great and go. See, God said that he would be great. And he would be blessed, but he didn't say when. He told Abraham he needed to go, but he didn't say where. He told Abraham that he'd be a great nation, but he didn't say how. Lots of questions to come along with this promise. And Abraham was confronted with a crisis. A crisis that went to the very core of his identity. <clears throat> See, in our world, our identity is based mostly on our position. What sort of job do you hold? What sort of accomplishments? But back then, one's identity was based on your family. It was based on the relationships you had. Your standing in the community. Abraham and his kin and everyone was in Haran, where he was well known. And God was saying to leave your descendants, leave your country, leave your kindred and your father's house, and to go to the land where I would show you. Basically, pick up your whole life and leave this place and go to a new place. Acquire a new identity. And so Abraham had a crisis. What was he going to do with his life? Well, we see in verse 8 what he did. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Imagine packing up your entire house, getting in the moving van, and your wife turning to you and saying, where are we going? And you simply say, I don't know. <laughs> faith. Why did Abraham do it? What would, what would cause someone to do such a crazy thing? Abraham had faith in the promises of God. Even if he didn't fully understand them, he knew that he was, that was the person that he could bank his entire life on. And so by faith he went to live, verse 9, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. See, Abraham finally went and landed in the place where he was supposed to go. But there was one problem. No one else knew about it but Abraham. He saw all this beautiful landscape. All of this land that was supposedly supposed to be his. But this land had walled cities. And armies. And people. that weren't going to give up their land just because God told Abraham that. Indeed, he viewed the promise from afar. Living as in a foreign land. Abraham spent all of his life watching this land, never fully realizing the promise of God. It was Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, who came into that land hundreds of years later. But we don't see Abraham being bitter. Rather, we see Abraham living a life of faith. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
See, Abraham made that faithful decision that day and every day afterwards to cut ties with the things of this world so that he could focus on clinging to God himself. Some of you have heard the story of C.T. Studd, Charles Studd, a very famous person in the 1800s in England. Studd was the son of Edward Studd, who was a very a wealthy man. He had made his fortune as an indigo planner in India, and he had come back to retire. And Edward had four different sons, Charles, C.T. being one of them. C.T. was brought up in the best schools of England, Eton and Cambridge. He was denied no privilege of the upper class. And he, along the way, he became a very, very successful cricket player. In fact, he played for England when England played Australia. He was a nationally ranked cricket player. Well, C.T.'s father, Edward, heard the evangelist D.L. Moody speak, and he became a believer in Christ. And more than anything, Edward wanted his sons to become believers as well. And so Edward would have evangelists over to preach to his children. But they weren't buying it until one day when Moody himself preached the gospel to C.T. and he heard it, and he became a Christian. But life was hard for C.T. See, he had all the privileges of wealth, and it was hard letting go of some of those things to fully embrace the gospel of Christ. He was admittedly a backslidden Christian. Until one day when his brother George took deathly ill, and as C.T. thought about this, he said, now what is all the world's popularity with George? What are fame and flattery worth? Is it worth possessing all the world's riches when a man faces eternity? And a voice seemed to answer to C.T., vanity of vanities, all is vanity. C.T., at that point, decided to dedicate his entire life to God, to cling to God rather than to the things of this world. But he wasn't sure what God was calling him to until he heard the missionary Hudson Taylor ask for men to go to China to preach the gospel. And C.T. realized that that was God's call upon his life. There was only one problem, his inheritance. His father had died Edward and left him with a sizable sum, equivalent to today's money of $25 million. C.T. realized that he had to let go of this money if he was truly going to be able to serve God. And so one day, C.T. took that $25 million and he gave it all away to charities and he got on the boat. I wish I could tell you that things went great for C.T., that he lived a life of ease and enjoyment. But his life was nothing like that. It was characterized by suffering and difficulty. He went and he preached the gospel in China. He got married. Two of his children died from diseases that could have been prevented if he was in England. He then went to India, and his wife became so sick that he had to leave her in England in order to go preach the gospel. In fact, he would never see her again. He died at the age of 70 in the Belgian Congo, preaching the gospel. See, C.T. made the decision whether to cling to the things of this world or to cling to God. He made his decision, and he never looked back. See, there are two types of people in this world. Those who cling to the things of this world and those who cling to the God. And sooner, sooner or later, if, you're confront, if you are, want to follow Christ, you will be confronted with the question, which type are you? See, God tested Abraham. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You may say, God will never test me. Oh, yes, he will. Why does God do that? 
Because God is the only one who is worth your heart. He's only the only one who's worthy of all of your life. Jesus said in Mark 10, 37, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reality is most of us don't. Most of us embrace the trappings of Christianity. We come to church. We volunteer. We participate. We give our time. Heck, we even give our money. We'll do everything we can to get to that line to make a deal with God. But taking a step over that, that's a whole other story. But you see, that's what it's all about, a life of faith. You'll never know that Jesus Christ is all you need until Jesus Christ is all you got. And God commands us to this life of faith because he doesn't want us to miss out. Heard an interesting story about how they trap monkeys in Africa. They develop these bottles, these glass bottles, and what they do is it kind of has a false bottom, and you unscrew the bottom, and you stick a piece of fruit into the bottle, and then you go ahead and close it, and you just leave them on the forest floor. Just go away. And what happens is the monkeys will come along, and they'll see the fruit, and the only way to get to the fruit is to reach their hand in the top of the bottle. But when they grab the fruit, their hand turns into a fist, and now their hand is too big to pull out of the bottle. But they're not unwilling willing to let go of the fruit. And so they're running around with this fruit. And they hear the call of the hunter as he comes down the forest floor. And they go taking off, unwilling to let go of the bottle when they could be free. Isn't that a picture of us? See, what are you clinging to? What's in your bottle that's holding on? keeping you from really experiencing the life of Christ. Am I saying that you're going to have to give all of your money away and head to the Belgian Congo? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm not saying you won't. Life of Christianity is a life of faith. There are only two people in this world, two types. One who clings to the things of this world and one who clings to God. We must cut ties with the old. But we must also, this leads to my second point, make peace with this present life. You know, there's an unsung hero in this story. You know who it is? It's Sarah. Okay, remember, Abraham received this great promise. Out of you will come this great nation and all of these descendants. Well, who was going to make that happen? <laughs> Not Abraham. It was going to have to be Sarah. See, Abraham received the promise. Sarah was responsible for fulfilling it. But there was only one problem. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children for some reason. Nobody knew why. She just couldn't. Back then, barrenness was a source of shame to not be able to produce an heir for the family. Many people considered that if you were barren, you were cursed by God. And so Sarah was confronted with this problem, all the promises of God and the realities of life. What was she to do? Well, she tried to struggle against this, figure this thing out on her own. Some of you will remember the story of Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant. Sarah said, I got an idea. Abraham, I'm going to give Hagar to you, 
You can sleep with her and they'll have a child and I'll build my offspring through, through, through her. Well, we all know how that will turn out, right? That thing went south pretty quick. No, that didn't work out. And in fact, nothing worked out for 25 years. 25 years. How did Sarah deal with this? Sarah, at some point, had to accept the reality of the disappointments of life in the shadow of the promises of God. How do you deal with the disappointments of life? You had a vision of marriage when you got married. A picture of what it was going to be like. But things went south somewhere along the way. You're not even exactly sure and you're left either a disappointing situation, a spouse who has left, a failed marriage, and you're confronted with the disappointing realities of life. What about in your business? You work all your life, you work hard, and all of a sudden, you know, one bad financial decision, one bad marketplace, one bad timing, and you find yourself in the twilight years with all of your inheritance gone, everything that you've worked for. How do you reconcile yourself with God's promises and the realities of life? See, Sarah at some point had to make a choice. Whether to cling to God or to cling to things. She had a choice between her circumstances and God. And Sarah chose God. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Yeah, it did occur for Sarah, but not until 25 years later. Sarah had to reconcile herself to the realities of life and to accept this present life and that God, who is faithful, will finally fulfill His promise in His timing. There was a gal I dated, started dating in junior high. Her name was Mary, and we were very good friends. Started dating in junior high. In fact, we dated all throughout high school. Mary's family was like a second family to me. We were friends, do everything together, go to all the, you know, the dances and everything together. I mean, kind of thick as thieves kind of thing. I grew used to having Mary around. She grew used to having me around. In fact, we went to college, same college together. And everyone was saying, oh, I know where this thing's going to end up. So many years together. But then things fell apart in my first year in college. For whatever reason, it wasn't meant to be. And Mary ended up going her way, and I ended up going mine. Now, when you've had someone around for so long who's been a part of your life, when you lose them, it's almost like losing your right arm or something. You know when they talk about when you amputate it and you look down and it feels like it's there, but it's not? See, there was a point when my picture of my life fell apart. And there wasn't another picture to replace it with. In fact, for an entire year, there wasn't anyone else in that picture. And as I look back upon it, I realized what God was doing in my life. He was shaking it up. He was testing me because He wanted me to understand that the thing I need most in life is to cling to God, not the things of this world. I had to make peace with my present circumstances. That was one of the worst years of my life, and it was one of the best. You never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when that timing was right, that was when I met Leanna. 
And I had a picture of something that God had that was so much greater for me that I never could have imagined for, uh, for myself. My question for you, my friends, is where are you with the present circumstances of your life? Have you made peace with it? Some of us are carrying around disappointments. Disappointments of the past, these failed marriages and bad business decisions, that decision I made that day, and we carry it around on our shoulders, living in the past, never quite able to reconcile our problems with the promises of God. Some of us carry disappointments on the present day, our health issues, our emotional problems, heck, our failed dreams, living day in and day out. I want you to know that God is bigger than your decisions. In fact, God is using your present circumstances to bring you to himself. But you have to make a decision. You have to make peace with your present life. And the only way you can do that is by choosing to cling to God rather than to the things of this world. How do we do that? Well, Sarah had a promise to go with. We have hundreds. For God has given us his word. He's told us who he is. He's told us what he expects of us, and he's told us what we can expect of him. Listen to 2 Peter 1.4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. How can we know what to expect of God? God has told us, and he's so confident that he's actually written it down. Test me and see if my promises are true. And so we must do so. But here's the truth, my friend. Some of us are holding on to God. We're holding God to promises that he's never made. Remember when I married Liella and I stood before a pastor and I made promises to her and she made promises to me in front of everyone. And Lee Ellen has every right to hold me to those promises, as I do to her. But there's some promises it's not fair for Lee Ellen to hold me to, is it? What's that song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden? They're promises. Some of us are holding God to promises that he's never made. See, if you follow Christ, Christ, God never promised us that we wouldn't have problems. But he promised us that we have peace in him. Amidst them. God never promised us that we would never be sick. But he promised us that he would never forsake us. God never promised us that we would be financially prosperous. But he promised that he would bless our life, if not our lifestyle. To hold God to his promises, we have to know them. So my encouragement to you is, do you know the promises of God in this book? To the degree that you study and know God's promises, to the degree that you put any weight in them at all. And so take the time to learn the promises of God. Get in a little corner with a Bible every day and read the promises of God. The purpose of this church is to teach you the promises of God. Next week we're going to be doing this book on uh, the book of James. And we're going to talk all about the promises of God. Be a part of that. Counterfeit gods with our men. Coming up, our men's Bible study. Choose to be a part of that. Our women's Bible study. 
Our community groups know the promises of God because they will help you to cling to God rather than to the things of this world. We must accept our present circumstances if we want to live this life of faith. And that brings me to my final point, that we must look expectantly to the future life. See, there's more to life than the present. The journey ain't over until it's over. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Because there is a time in the future when all will be made right. When we will no longer have to accept the promises of God by faith, but we will see them by sight, for they will be fulfilled. There will come a time, the Bible says, when the world is transformed, when all is made right, and when God comes, and His promises will, believe, uh, will be fulfilled. If you believe in Jesus, and if you follow Him, you have an inheritance. But you live in two worlds. The world of already, your inheritance in Christ, and the world of not yet, the promises not fulfilled. And so we must accept this present life, we must look expectantly to the future life, realizing that we too are aliens and strangers in this world. I love it when it says the people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have returned. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. God has prepared a city for them. These people, they lived accepting their presence, but they lived in expectation of the future. How about Joseph at the end giving instruction about his bones? When you leave Egypt 600 years later, take my bones. What's up with that? What's up with that is he knew that at some day, God would not forsake his people, and that means not forsaking them to death, that one day Joseph again would be brought to life in the resurrection. So we too must live with expectation for the future. Well, it's one thing to say all these things. It's another thing to do them, isn't it? How do we cut ties with this present life? How do we, with our old life, how do we accept the present life? How do we look expectantly to the future life? Carlos, thanks for the advice, but so what? See, the thing I want to leave you with is this, that God gives us the knowledge, not only of them, but the power to do them. How? Because there is one who has already done them. The story of a perfect life of faith has already been lived. It was Jesus Christ, wasn't it, who cut ties with the old life. Though he was seated with God in heaven, forsook his inheritance of 25 million and came to earth to live as a man amidst us, to be misunderstood, misrecognized, to live in this mission. How did he do it? He clung to his Father. It was Jesus who made peace with this present life, living 33 years as a carpenter, the one who came to die. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, all of Jesus' present life was a slow, inexorable walk to the cross. To die for the sins of his people. How did Jesus die with dignity? How did he die even with joy? He kept his eyes on the Father. Clinging to him rather than to the things of this world. It was Jesus who looked expectantly to the future life. 
Jesus knew that if he clung to the Father, if he walked in his ways, that he would not be abandoned to the grave. And so Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he was killed, after three days, he will rise again. Jesus lived the perfect life of faith. And so God has not only given us his promises, he's given us the life to live it through us. How do we live the life of faith? We trust in Jesus to live it through us as we cling to him. You can't live a life of faith. But he can. And he's in you. And you are in him. You won't live a life of faith. But he will. And he's in you. And you are in him. You don't even want to live a life of faith. But he does. He is in you. And you are in him. There are only two types of people. Those who cling to the things of this world. And those who cling to God. Which one are you? In Jesus Christ, you can be the one too. Let's pray.